Uh, good afternoon. Today we're beginning, as, uh, as Carol said, a new sermon series on the first letter of St. John. So the honour falls to me of setting the scene for the letter as a whole, as well as talking you through the John's own introduction to the letter. If, like me, you're a particular fan of John's gospel, then you should feel right at home in this letter. Certainly the two writings have a great deal in common. In fact, one John almost seems to presuppose a knowledge of John's gospel. Simon, again, we're going to come across important statements in the letter which only really become clear by reference to some, the same ideas in the gospel. One important example of this comes in chapter 2, where John seems to be confused about whether his injunction to the people to love one another is a new commandment or an old one. On the one hand, he wants his readers to know that this is not a new commandment, but was always part of the gospel they've already been told. On the other hand, for those well-versed in John's gospel, it is none other than the famous new commandment that Jesus says he's giving to his disciples at the Last Supper in John 13. A new commandment I give you, that you should love one another as I have loved you. This is the thing that will mark you out as my disciples, if you have love one for another. From this and from many other examples, it seems probable that the first readers of this letter were reasonably familiar with John's version of the gospel story. Indeed, when he addresses them as, as his little children, it sounds very much as if many of them came to faith through his preaching. If... Uh, like many readers, you would find this a bit of a confusing letter, then there's surely no better commentary on it than John's Gospel. In fact, I go so far as to say that the one doesn't make a great deal of sense without the other. Now, there is some scholarly debate uh, about authorship, but for most of us, the clear textual similarities along with the ancient church tradition should be quite sufficient. We can assume that both were written by John, the beloved disciple of Jesus. The structure of the letter is more circular than linear, coming back repeatedly to various themes, all of which build a picture of God as light, as truth slash righteousness, and as love. And at the same time, it produces, as it were, a reflected image of the believer as one who lives out the same three attributes, light, truth, righteousness, and love. That, says John, is how we can prove both to ourselves and to others that we are Jesus' true disciples. And as his disciples, we're both destined for and already enjoying the first fruits of eternal life in and through him. Now, if there's something of a shadow over this letter, and I think there is, it's one that is cast by its evident context. False teachers with seemingly good credentials have separated themselves from the apostles, chapter 2, verse 18, and are now trying to mislead the second-generation Christians. They are teaching that the gospel, and indeed the Christ they have received, is in some way deficient and insufficient, and that they are therefore defective disciples in need of some great new revelation. And guess who's going to sort them out with that? John's statements in this letter can first appear like rather a disjointed list of rambling and rather worrying thoughts on the Christian life in general. But they begin to spring into sharp focus once we realize that many of them are direct refutations of specific false teachings. 
and others are simply instructions on avoiding false teachers. Read like that, far from being the jumbled thoughts of an elderly, near-senile apostle, the letter becomes a masterpiece of argument. It confronts various heresies and sins one by one, while constantly returning to those themes of light, righteousness, truth, and love. The other side of the coin is the rather unpleasant picture that emerges without having to read too much between the lines of the false prophets themselves. They are persistent sinners, but deny sinning at all. Chapter 1, verse 10, and 3, verse 4. They are disobedient to Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 4. They are divisive and unloving. Chapter 2, verse 9, and 3, 10. They are worldly. Chapter 3, 15, and 4, verse 5. They are Christ deniers, chapter 3, verse 22, and they are selfish, chapter 3, verse 17. While none of this negative character study is exactly spelled out for us, we know it's what John means from a particular key verse in chapter 2, verse 26. There he says, quite specifically, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So it's important to note that every time he describes a sin or a false doctrine, which he does rather a lot, it's most often meant not as a rebuke to the reader at all. It's intended more as an indicator of how to recognize a false prophet. We might be reminded of Jesus' famous teaching in Matthew 7 about by their fruits shall you know them. If we keep this essential purpose in mind as we read 1 John, um, that it was written particularly to help disciples avoiding false teachers, then I think we can save ourselves from a morass of confusion and needless self-examination. Much as it may look like it, he's not saying, you're bad, or don't do that. He's saying, you're already on the right path. Don't wander off it. Examine the lives of those who claim to be your teachers. If it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then guess what? If these self-proclaimed spiritual masters display the following negative characteristics, then don't believe a word they say. Right, that's enough introduction from me. Now let's have a look at how John himself opens this wonderful letter. I'm going to read John, 1 John 1, 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, verses 1 to 3 consist of one rather long and convoluted uh, sentence in the Greek. Many English translations helpfully break it up, the better to, uh, to convey the sense to a modern reader. But it's quite striking in the Greek that the main verb doesn't actually appear until verse 3. We proclaim to you. And I've rather deliberately stuck with a somewhat clunkier translation that follows the Greek, even though we don't talk like that. 
because I think the orderly progression of ideas is helpful. John is at pains to say what it is that he and his colleagues first proclaimed and still proclaim now to these early Christians. So with your permission, all I'll do is take this short passage one verse at a time and attempt to track the different ideas as they come up, as John develops the argument in his own introduction. Unusually for an epistle, there is no indication at the start of the author's name, nor is there any greeting or blessing for his intended audience. Maybe mice got at the original scroll. Or perhaps the author is simply so well known to his readers that they'll recognize his inimitable style the second he, uh, he starts off with the first verse. Close communities tend to be like that. They communicate in shorthand. Things go unexplained because no explanation is necessary. Perhaps reading aloud the opening lines of this letter would have been rather like that lovely moment in any live gig where the people suddenly recognize the opening chords of a favorite song and cheer. Be that as it may, my commentaries seem to be quite happy to assert both John's authorship of this letter and the likely audience as being the churches where he was well known in what was called Asia Minor. First one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Well, as a verse that might have been lifted straight out of the first chapter of John's Gospel. Here once more, he refers to the beginning as the original locus of Jesus. Not locust, locust place where he was. Here again, he refers to seeing and touching the physical reality of a bodily Jesus. He even calls Jesus by the same mystical name, the Word of Life. In the beginning was the Word, are the opening words of John's Gospel. And commentaries have a great deal to say about the precise meaning of the beginning and of eternity in general. It'll suffice us, I think, to notice that the concept which opened John's Gospel and is repeated here echoes the very first words in the Bible. In the beginning, God. This has to be our starting point in any consideration of what Douglas Adams called life, the universe, and everything. In the beginning, God. And I'd like to point out what uh, looks like an intentional timeline within the verse. Jesus was from the beginning. Then humanity heard his voice through the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. Then at last, a more specific we, the apostles and uh, fellow witnesses of Christ's life, looked upon and touched with their hands an unambiguously physical human Jesus. It's one and the same Jesus, he's saying, from creation, all through the Old Testament, into the gospel narrative, and still present in the church today. The word of life is the same person from beginning to end. This primary assertion, it seems to me, is vital to understanding whatever's going to follow in this letter. There were various heresies washing around the Mediterranean rim at the probable time of writing, which is somewhere between 80 and 95 A.D., these included one that Jesus was just a spirit and didn't have a body at all. Another stated that he was simply a good man, briefly endowed with the Christ from on high at the moment of his baptism and lifted off him at some time before he died so that he died as an ordinary man and God didn't have to die. 
And these and other variations make the same mistake of dividing Jesus' humanity from his Godhead. They're attractive to human reason, but John is clear they're completely mistaken. He and the first disciples have seen, touched, heard, walked with, eaten with God himself in human form. And anyone who says otherwise is simply wrong. Verse 2, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Little slug of gin. Not really. Here, <laughs> no, all right. Here, not for the last time in this letter, John seems to get a little bit carried away with the wonder of what he's describing. So we have uh, this verse, as it were, in brackets, enlarging on the context of verse 1. Having called Jesus the word of life, he now expands on his experience of that life which he saw in Jesus. It's a life he had seen overflowing again and again through three years of Jesus' ministry in miracles, in healing, in casting out demons, even in raising the dead. And by the way, both when Jesus first sent out the twelve to, to preach the gospel and when the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, they experienced precisely that same abundant life overflowing through them in precisely the same ways. But perhaps most wonderfully of all, they had seen this same life raise the crucified Jesus back to life from the dead. So it's not for nothing that he's getting excited when he says that this eternal life which was in the Father became manifest and he saw it and experienced it for himself. The churches reading the letter, almost all of them, hadn't had that privilege. But then again, neither had the false prophets who now troubled the church with their rationalizations of the necessarily mysterious, supernatural life which John had personally known in the physical form of Jesus. What right have these self-styled teachers to theorize on matters of which they know nothing? It's a great sadness to me that some Christians today don't believe that Jesus still heals and casts out demons through his current disciples. And they have great theological arguments for their position. Well, I have experience for mine. Just because someone's brighter than me doesn't mean he's right. And that's the sort of position these first readers of 1 John have got to come to. And just a, a brief textual footnote before we move on. In this letter, us sometimes means we apostles and our contemporaries, the, the fellow disciples who'd, who'd seen Jesus as he walked about Galilee. But sometimes it broadens out to include the readers as well. So there's an us which is us to you, and there's an us which is all of us. In this case, he means us apostles and co, as becomes clear in the next verse. What he's saying is, we have seen this, and we know it to be true. You can take that to the bank and ignore anyone who says any different. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We, apostles and co., had the experience of seeing and personally knowing Jesus for ourselves. 
But we don't want to keep that to ourselves. The reason we share it with you is not to big ourselves up. On the contrary, we want you to be part of the story with us. We want you to be where we are. The Greek word koinonia, which is here translated fellowship, was used to describe the relationship between business partners, between joint owners of land, or shareholders in any common enterprise. It's a term liberally scattered throughout the New Testament, and usually with this precise meaning. So it's rather unfortunate that in contemporary Christian language, fellowship has come to mean little more than a jolly time together, or maybe uh, the name of a particular church, often one where they don't know anything about equal status, by the way. But the fellowship John is talking about, this koinonia, is the most inclusive, exclusive club in the world. And club members include not only Apostles and Co. and us, they include Jesus and God the Father himself. That's the club of which he's trying to persuade these church people not to tear up their membership cards in order to join a bunch of know-nothing false prophets. As the letter progresses, John will first reassure his readers that they are already members of this wonderful fellowship. And secondly, he'll point out the characteristics of those false guides who would lead them away from it. That's the purpose he's stating in verse 3. Verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Once again, that our in our joy is a bit ambiguous. It could mean we apostles and co. want our own joy to be complete. Though I must admit that sounds a little bit selfish. Even then, it's not completely selfish, since their joy would only be fulfilled by the readers staying in Koinonia with them. I think in the light of the letter as a whole, a better reading would be to regard that we as an inclusive one. We apostles and you guys as well. We write to you so that you will stay in fellowship with us and also with Jesus and the Father, so that together all of us will enjoy each other's friendship and partnership in the work of the kingdom. At this time of year, as some of our beloved students drift off to get on with real life after their studies here, I'd like to echo that thought in a prayer for us all. In a moment, the band will play, and anyone in need of healing or deliverance or empowering or just a touch of the Holy Spirit will be invited to come forward so that we can pray for you. But for now, please stand with me if you're able, and I'll pray for us all. Heavenly Father, thank you for drawing us into this wonderful fellowship with each other, with innumerable saints down the ages, and with you and your son, Jesus. May we remain true to the truth we have heard. By your spirit, may we be people who will live out in this world your light, your truth, and your love. Amen.